I'll turn video off. That makes sense. Okay. So now it's just going to be my picture. So. <laughs> That's so bad. <laughs> Dude, I can't look at that. I mean, I'll try. <laughs> it's like your fucking 15 year old body space picture. Call me, what's up? <laughs> All right, so we'll start this over. Uh, all right, y'all. Today I'm today I'm here with uh, Ethan Grossman and Ryan LeCure, and we are gonna uh, kind of jam on the logistical logistical aspects of of tracking training volume, and then also everything that comes along with that. And so, one of the big things in in the field right now is how do we count these things when because training volume seems to be maybe the most important variable when you're trying to drive muscle hypertrophy. And so, does when you're thinking about it, like a, a bench press, does what does that count for the triceps versus the tricep extension? And then these things get even more complicated as you get into squats for like, are you even training the rectus femoris? Like, how do you count that for hamstrings? And so we we just really wanted to jam on this. I don't think that um, anybody really has concrete answers at this point. I think that we all just have different models that we're working off of. And uh, and that, and I know that all three of us, Ethan, Ryan, and I, we all have kind of different models that are, are the same, um, but do have some nuances to that. So I wanted to, to get these guys on a call and, and just, and just really just hash it out. So where do you guys, where do you guys fall in terms of, of this Agnes synergist one for one tracking volume? Yeah, go ahead, Ethan. You kick it off. Yeah, I'll I'll kick it off. And and let me just say in typical podcast fashion, thanks for having me on, guys. I'm a fan of the show. So much appreciated. The only one. The only one. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, as far as counting sets go, um, I'll tell you what. I think it's a little bit more relevant when we're talking about, like, the beginner or, you know, maybe the first time you're writing a program for someone. So, you know, if, if this is your job, if you're, you know, an online coach or in-person coach, you probably have some kind of, you know, template or schematic of, you know, how you start someone out and then just kind of work from there. And I think that's where you'd first set it up and you'd look at, okay, you know, maybe 10 sets per week or per muscle group, you know, and, and actually count it out and have, have something sort of based on, you know, what we know from the research in beginners. But from there, you know, I look at it almost like the the early bodybuilders would have as far as, you know, counting nutrition. And instead of looking at it like, you know, how many carbs do we have? How much protein do we have? You know, it's sort of like add a sweet potato, you know, add a chicken breast. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think when you get into like trying to quantify it, there's a lot of, you know, potential sort of like black holes there. It becomes really difficult as far as, you know, quantifying effort, quantifying, you know, which muscles are being trained, to what extent they're being trained, the positions they're being overloaded in. And I think a lot of it just comes down to having, you know, a base framework and then building off that. I I don't think it's necessary really to have numerical values associated with it. I think you just need to have some kind of framework that you can, you know, add off of or potentially subtract off of. So that, I mean, that's my basic stand there and then we can sort of get more specific. So are you oscillating volume then? Are you waving it? Are you just, cause are you just kind of in the camp of, Hey, like I'm going to keep this volume as, as high as I can if I know I'm adapting and then I'll, I'll back off. Yeah. So I split training into, you know, a few different phases. So 
you know, it's always kind of like a continuum of what I'm focusing on. And you can call those phases whatever you want, um, whether it just be, you know, high rep, low rep, or, you know, metabolic versus high tension versus, you know, mechanical damage. Um, it doesn't even really matter what you name them or, you know, if, if you want to really break it down into sort of like the, the scientific components, but there's differentiation between phases and it feels different. Um, and I think that's important. And each one of those phases is a distinct stimulus of sorts. And as I switch stimuli, I'm also, I'm not necessarily trying to compare volumes between stimuli. So if I'm doing one stimuli that's maybe like a higher rep and maybe that's coming along with overload, you know, a, a resistance profile that's overloaded in a different position or even different exercises or even, um, you know, different um, types of resistance, you know, whether that be iron or air with the Kaiser, I, I don't try to compare one to one. I'm, I'm looking at distinct phases that, you know, I escalate separately over time that all fit into sort of a, uh, that fit into a macro cycle. So we have these mesocycles that are distinct enough, and then we increase each of them separately over time. Now, I think the goal with each of them is to increase work and work for each of those things, you know, is, is <clears throat> always like total mechanical tension in a sense, but maybe through a slightly different vector. And because, you know, the, the research at least leans towards mechanical tension being, you know, the, the primary and, uh, you know, most definitive stimulus at this point for muscular hypertrophy. That's where I spend most of my time as most of my time from a nutritional standpoint is also spent in a caloric surplus. So it's kind of just looking at, you know, a, a pyramid or, uh, you know, a, a percentage of, you know, where do I want to spend my time and making sure that I'm spending my time on the top priorities, uh, the same way you would, you know, set up a business or life or anything else for that matter. So, it's, so how, it's on... how are you quantifying work? Yeah, work will usually come down to sets. Oh, so really work when, when I, when I think total volume or work and, and the two are kind of interchangeable. I'm just looking at like the total number of sets that you're doing. And so not by muscle group, just total sets through for the week. Well, yes, but I mean by muscle group, but I don't necessarily have to break it down that way. Like I said, if you broke it down that way initially and then just sort of build out from there, um, I don't find it necessary to really have numbers associated with it. Like, you know, you, you have a decision tree and you know which direction you need to move. And to move in a direction, you don't necessarily need a number associated with it. I think putting a number associated with it when you don't, when you're totally, I don't want to say totally guessing, but you, that number is based on a lot of assumptions. Mm -hmm. I think it's better to just move to, like in a direction, uh, have directionality to things and necessarily try to, you know, um, quantify exactly what that is. So yes, it is, I'm trying to uh, distribute stress you know, as like as in as varied of ways as possible, whether that be like toward uh, towards different muscles or, you know, with different resistance profiles, uh, splitting up, you know, the training frequency as much as possible and, and, and on and on and on. 
Um, and then again, if you want to focus, you know, on a specific body part, you know, you might do more of that thing. Uh, mm -hmm. But I, I do think the eventual goal really in, in all of these stimuli is to do more total work. And like I said, work, uh, it's, it's an amalgam. I don't want to say reps here, right? Because I think reps, as long as we're in, you know, sort of the, the right intensity ranges, and, and that's a pretty wide range, um, don't matter so much. So we're looking at like hard sets. Uh, I think like we're all in agreement on that for the most part, you know, what hard is, is a conversation we can get into later, but um, it sets. And then it's also sort of the amalgam of load that you're using on those sets. And I think sometimes we forget that is like increasing volume is still getting stronger. If you never change your training program, which is most bodybuilders, you know, ever most, you know, most Mr. Olympia is pretty much did the same program. Uh, for a good part of their career, it's not like they were incrementally increasing volume on a macro or meso level. Some of them maybe by accident, but most guys, same program, increase load, increase drugs. And, um, you know, over time, like that's still more work and they were able to support more work, whether through more food, you know, more drugs or what have you. But, you know, they were pushing that vector of volume oftentimes just just through load. And I think it's a combination of the two. I think when you look at, you know, the guys who've managed to build the, the most muscle, that there are guys who have built a ton of muscle with, you know, very high sets and sort of moderate loads or, or you know, moderate intensities or even moderate exertions. Um, and then there are guys who have done really low volumes but have had, you know, really high strength. And, and I think the biggest guys – are the guys who are doing the most total work and the most total work being they're doing a high number of sets. Uh, take Ronnie Coleman, for example, he, he trained twice a week. He trained uh, every muscle group at least twice a week. I say at least because he had it programmed as like an uh, A day, B day, C day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or yeah, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And then um, A1, B1, C1, uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So I say at least because, you know, obviously there's some, some overlap there as well. Like he split it up as far as what he saw those muscle groups being. But when you're talking about things like arms and shoulders, there's also some overlap. Um, so he was trading twice a week. He, when you add up all his sets, he's just as high as anyone else. And, you know, when you, you sort of, you know, put him on this imaginary list of, you know, who's strong and who's not, he, he leans towards the top of that. And there's various reasons why he could recover from that. And you could argue, you know, that there were consequences to that. But, um, you know, the total amalgam of volume or, or work that he displayed was higher than the next guys. And uh, I think that matters. I think we should aim to do more total work over time, you know, at in the in the uh, domain that's specific to our craft. And, and I think that pretty much falls under, uh, you know, under any domain, you know, whether it be learning a language, you know, an instrument, you know, or, you know, a sport is that we want to spend, you know, the most amount of total time we can, uh, assuming we're able to recover or, or in another avenue, maybe it's we're able to benefit or learn, um, and if we can do that, if we can spend more time than the next person and, and we have some way to quantify that the time we're spending is, is useful or significant time, uh, we should aim to increase that over time. And I think when we stop increasing that or that slows for whatever reason, 
then our progress will slow. You know, when, when people argue that like, yeah, the, you know, the stronger you get, your total sets, you know, may eventually plateau. And that's true. But I think that's around the same time where you stop growing. And I mm -hmm. think the aim should always be to do more work. And it's incumbent on you to find means to be able to do more work. And there's multiple vectors, you know, not just sets and load, um, but also messing around with the organization um, of your training and the exercise form tempo um, and, and sort of a, a myriad of, you know, sort of minor factors that you may have not thought of or, or, or deem necessary in that first program. Whereas, you know, later in a career, they may be a means to actually add work um, without having to add sets or add um, load to the bar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like I feel like it's the difference between that art and uh, the science and practice in, in a way. And that, you know, when we're looking at you gave the example of, of macronutrients versus a, a meal plan and it if it creates a, a deficit, you're going to lose weight. Uh, it, so it doesn't really matter. Like the, the numbers are never really that concrete and we can use this uh, quantifying set volume as the same thing. And because that was kind of the, the question is like, well, how do we quantify a pull up? You know, is that a lat exercise? Is, is that a bicep exercise? Is it both? Or, you know, what, what is that? But it really kind of what I, what I hear you saying is that it, in a way, in terms of volume, at least it doesn't really matter. It's just a matter of doing more than you did before. And volume may just be one vehicle to get there. These other things being less, uh, maybe not as easy to to quantify in, in the research. The things like just quality of the set in terms of what muscles you're actually using, things that you can't really measure. And I think that's kind of like the difference between the practice and the science. Sometimes it's like that kind of makes sense. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I'm trying to. What I'm trying to think about too is. is and just taking Ethan, what he's doing in practice and trying to, he's, he already had, it's, it's, I think it's really important. He's not just like whimsically like, Oh, I just want more work. You, you have a template that you're going for. And then you, that template is built off what you've done previously. And then, then you're adding work sets on top of that based on what you have, what you do already. So you've essentially established that this is my baseline volume. And then how am I going to do more? And then that more doesn't necessarily matter because you've already built that in you're like you're assessing okay i want more bicep volume how am i going to get that in it's probably going to be some kind of single joint bicep work um am i right in that yeah that's totally correct and in the background there's all these other metrics that i'm looking at to say is that what needs to happen you know so it's also comparing you know comparing what's happening in training you know uh with subjective and objective markers of progress and you know trying to ask yourself you know is uh, can you handle more volume? Are you recovering from what you're already giving yourself? You know, are you doing, uh, are you optimizing the things outside of training that you need to? So, you know, it's, it's constantly comparing, you know, where you're at with, you know, the data that's coming back from that. Which is super important. And I think that we've talked about this a little bit before Ben and I, that as this argument of volume being really important is growing, people are kind of forgetting about some of that stuff, I think. And they're just like, ah, I'm not growing. I need five more sets per week because, you know, research shows that we can go up to 40 sets per week and I'm only at 20. And it's like, well, there's all of these other factors that are involved that you may not be addressing. Where does it, 
I'm just interested, like, for where it falls for you in terms of increasing volume. Like, at what point, what metrics are you using to kind of determine, like, you know, it's it's not exercise selection, it's not order of exercise, it's not frequency, it's actually volume. I need more sets. Do you have a way of kind of figuring that out? Yeah, yeah. So I would first say, you know, to the person that's like, you know, I'm not making progress. Um, so let me add sets. I, I would say, you know, measuring progress for bodybuilding, you know, even as an intermediate lifter is extremely difficult. Like if you're yeah. talking about measuring muscle mass, it's, it's difficult um, from a direct measurement standpoint. If we're literally taking biopsies, there's a number of problems there. And then when we're talking about indirect measures and, you know, just how long that takes to actually see results. I mean, I just I always. Uh, I always kind of wonder how people are coming to that conclusion that they're, that they're not making progress. Um, mm -hmm. But what I would say is if you have this idea that your overall goal, you know, is to sort of do more over time. Right. And there's a lot of things that fall under this. Like, you know, if you want to gain weight, you're adding calories over time. And there's a bunch of nuance to that. You know, there's the qualitative components along with the quantitative, just like we've talked about with training. So there is nuance to it. So people can argue, you know, it's not just, you know, calories in, calories out. But on a macro level, like on, on a large scale level, it, it really is. Um, so with all of these vectors, like with the multiple vectors that are going into, you know, um, in, into bodybuilding progress, you know, you're looking at moving things up over time with the assumption that that's what you need to do to make progress because you really can't quantify it on a moment-to-moment -moment basis mm -hmm. so i think the attempt should be to move up slowly over time you know muscle growth is, is a very like long low and slow process so you need to build that into the equation you need to start you need to have some semblance of where a starting place is and i think that's what the research gives us pretty well is you know most of it's going to be in beginners um so when we're talking about looking at set numbers uh i think that's mainly where it's useful and then you want to look at well where do i need to go over time and if your goal is to be in you know an ifbb pro bodybuilder then you might want to look at you know what do these guys you know what do these guys weigh uh you know how how many hours how many sets are they training per week you know um how many calories are, are they eating per week you know and in, in their case you know how much drugs are they taking per week like all of these things, you know, not that they're doing everything right, but you have some semblance of here you are on the map and this is where you need to go. And maybe you want to even slightly overshoot like where some of those people are or look at the mistakes that they've made. But you need to make some grand estimation of here's where you are. Here's where you want to go. Here are the vectors that you need to pursue to get there. And then you fill in those vectors with the tools that you have. So, <clears throat> you know when we're talking about when do I make sort of a, a, a quantitative versus a qualitative change, the qualitative should always be there. Like you're always analyzing, you know, is this, you know, am I doing, you know, sort of the best form that I can, but you also, you want to check in with that because just your, um, your drive to progress sometimes is going to throw those things off. Like if we just took form, for example, um, I don't necessarily have deloads in the typical way that you would think about it, um, but I do, again, switch the stimulus. 
And when I do that, that's also a time where sometimes the exercises might change and it's a time to check in with your form. And because things are novel, um, you're not going to really, you're not going to be at your sort of highest strength output or neurological output just because there is some, you know, motor relearning, so to speak, happening. Uh, so that's a really good time to focus on the qualitative aspect of things. And also you might just build it into your periodization. You could say, okay, this week we're going to add a set next week. We're going to increase the top end weight. And then the following week, we're going to keep that top end weight, keep those sets. And we're actually just going to make the form a little bit better. So it depends on how advanced you are. And because everything has this trade-off of sort of a, a, a risk reward or has a cost associated with it. Um, mm -hmm. And you're trying to, you know, move as quickly towards this goal while mitigating those costs as much as possible. And the cost of, you know, constantly increasing load is that, you know, you increase uh, or, or sets like literally just effort over the cost of increasing effort over time. Mm -hmm. is, is fatigue and with fatigue comes injury risk. So you might just want to check yourself. Um, you know, a big part of this process is just creating this, this vision of, of, of you, you are a human, you have this unique ability to sort of create this, um, you know, this artificial uh, uh, sort, sort of vision in your mind that other, other animals are not, you know, create, have this sort of dopaminergic drive to, uh, you know, suffer for something that they've just, you know, created out of thin air. Uh, so you have to balance that with the realities of the risks that are associated with it. Um, but I, but I would say, you know, you're, you're constantly checking the qualitative end of it, whether that be, you know, in the sort of mesocycle progression or, 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 you know, even on the microcycle level, like I was saying, if, if you were to go load and then sets and then, you know, form or something, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, but then, you know, at the same time, like the goal is to move, you know, to consistently move the, the total work up over time. So as long as everything's good, like as long as let's say you're not getting weaker, I think that would be a really good marker to look at it. I, I know we've talked about before the idea that if you're not getting stronger, that you might add sets. I kind of look at it the other way where I'm trying to add volume or add total work. And I'm asking myself, you know, can I continue to do this whilst not getting weaker? Does that mm -hmm. make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, I kind of come back to, if we're trying to track this idea of, of not getting bigger, it, it's almost impossible when you're thinking about like, especially a trained person, ultrasound cross-sectional area might be the best. What is somebody like blowing bubbles right now? What the fuck are you doing? I'm got this 15 year old kid. He's like blowing bubbles, huffing and puffing in the fucking mic. I'm playing with my friends. That's uh, I don't I, I don't know how to mute this thing. That was the noon tablets. Oh, that's <laughs> so you know I'm about I'm about ten pounds uh, ten pounds down uh, right now. Um, but you should you should see the other guy, and, and by the other guy I mean my toilet. Uh, <laughs> how many noon tablets do you have to eat to gain 10 pounds that's uh, <laughs> oh, <God damn> it. <laughs> oh. 
So if you're trying to track this this idea of like someone says I'm not getting bigger, it's like how do you know you're not getting bigger? A Dexa, if you're if you're an advanced trainee, a Dexa probably can't pick that up in in 16 weeks. So maybe like an ultrasound, a spot measurement, cross sectional area, maybe maybe that's a huge maybe. But so what are we left with when someone says that? And to me, I think the best proxy we have is are, they're not getting stronger at low skill single joint exercises. That would be my that would be my my biggest indicator of hey maybe and then I'm then I'm asking like from your decision tree then I'm asking I'm going to what's 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 going on in the background with nutrition what's going on in the background with sleep what's going yeah, on back, like all that stuff and if they check all those boxes then we kind of either have two routes in my opinion we might need to deload them or we, or they might need more uh-huh. uh, and. And that's kind of that's where I and most of the time I'm I'm gonna lead if they're an advanced trainee I'm gonna lead towards more, um, and that's so, just my so Ben. So Ben, you're you're adding sets when they're not getting stronger. Yeah, so that would that's kind of like this decision tree. If someone's not getting stronger, they check all the other boxes from a from a nutrition all the all the other boxes that we would check, and then we either we have a decision where we can either um, back off deload that muscle group or we can we can push on and and i think that for the majority of people there you you would likely push on and then if they if they continue to not make progress then maybe you would back off that's just me thinking theoretically in my head is is try try more first and if more doesn't work then back off and then try back try jump on more again because eventually you know that you know that they have to get to a point of of more we're all in agreement that they need to get to a point where they they need to do more work so here here's my question on that then because what we're chasing there is strength and and what we're saying is that more volume will drive more strength and i i guess i'm looking at it from the other way that i want to chase volume I don't want strength. I'm using strength as sort of a proxy of recovery and I don't want strength to drop off. Um, but you know, is volume really the driver of strength? No. So you, so that would say, yeah, I guess, but even from a low skilled single joint exercise, like if you're not getting stronger at a preacher curl, like what are you going to back off and do sets of, I guess you could back off and change your set. You could change your rep scheme. Which is essentially what you're doing with these micro, with these macro blocks, and like, and and then kind of changing the stimulus. If I'm if I'm understanding the the model in my head correctly, um, yeah, think, that's right. It would probably make sense that kind of testing within a mesocycle, and you know, like defining a mesocycle as probably a like three month or two month period where you're following similar similar micro cycles. I think it would make sense then, but if you did a complete overhaul where I mean, say you went from, I mean, again, call it whatever you want, you know, a high volume block or uh, to a neurological block or something, for instance, just from that dissipating fatigue from the going from mm-hmm. a high volume phase to a neurological phase, if you were to compare those two mesocycles, you probably would get stronger uh, in that exercise, but that might not be an indicator that you put on muscle necessarily. I think you just look at it as like a yeah, maybe use that as a testing for like individual mesocycles or from like a, a whole macro cycle perspective, like in a year that you've you've gained some uh, with all other things being equal. It's hard, man. It's hard to measure. <laughs> it's really difficult. 
Uh, I don't know. Is, is that is that kind of what you're thinking? With that, yes. like how often would you be assessing that? Because if you had periods, you know, where you are doing a higher volume week or overreaching week or like a deload or whatever, like that's going to change it somewhat significantly. So like when, how often would you be assessing that strength gain? Well, there's, I mean, there's people that would assess it on set one on a weekly basis for, you know, from a micro loading standpoint, like that's mm -hmm. how they're driving. That's how they're driving their hypertrophy is they are looking at set one as essentially their testing set every week. And maybe they're going to keep their RP at nine and then they're trying to dr drive it up by, you know, like they have micro plates and they're going to try to drive it up by mm -hmm. half, a, like half a pound or something, probably less than that, uh, especially <laughs> on accessory work. And so that's their primary driver is, hey, we have this essentially this testing set and then we have volume sets after that. Or they would use volume across sets. And, and these are the tactics that I see used to quantify this stuff is then you would have like a double progression, which Ryan and I both use, which would be like if you did you're trying to get to 15 on all three sets. But if you get 15, you stay the same weight and then you're trying to essentially create more volume by getting more reps. Well, then there's also this whole other concept, and I, I don't want to speak for him because, uh, you know, I've only listened to him in podcasts and things, but I, I feel like I've heard Mike Israel talk about this concept that, like, if you're getting stronger each week, that you're not doing the amount of volume that you should be doing for hypertrophy, which is kind of an interesting concept because we think about most of the literature for strength training, it's all based around strength or performance, and hypertrophy is neither one of those things, really. We're only using strength and performance as a proxy for hypertrophy. But if we're looking at it in a micro level, there might be something to that. Maybe you should be essentially overreaching in these blocks uh, and then deloading and then you know allowing those, those gains to uh, form or whatever. So that, that throws a whole other wrench in the equation too. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts with that. Like if you're constantly getting better in terms of performance from week to week, is that is it possible that you're not training hard enough? Yeah, I mean, I think using strength as your as the primary thing that you're trying to push up, because I think when it's set up in that way, you're you're really asking, you know, you're really setting it up with strength as sort of like the the, the holy grail or the thing that you're focusing on, mm -hmm. probably because it's the easiest to measure. Yeah, and, and I think it is still a relevant proxy of stress of, you know, whether you're recovering, but I don't think we should necessarily aim for strength to be the thing that's going up, rather strength sort of being a consequence on the back end. Mm -hmm. So I, I do lean towards, you know, like what Mike's saying there, not necessarily that if you're the optimal place is to not be progressing in strength. Because I don't necessarily think that you want to find out what is the very top end that you can do. I think that you just want to do a little bit more than you were doing before. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and I think that applies for a lot of things. It's not simply just like, what's the most of this I can do without you know, falling apart? It's really, what's the most that I can do with... Um, sort of the top end of benefits, right? Like you always get a, a little bit more benefit for a little bit, you know, more work until a certain point where that drops off. Obviously you don't want the point where that drops off, but you also don't want to be, you know, at hanging around that plateau. I think you want to get, you know, the peak benefit for just a little bit more work. Mm -hmm. um, 
so I think you should attempt to add volume, whether that be through sets or through load or through manipulating, um, you know, various qualitative factors. Um, and that you don't want strength to necessarily decline. Um, but I don't necessarily think that you want to base whether or not you increase volume off of whether or not you're getting stronger, if that makes sense. It's like, it's sort of saying the same thing, but it's putting the emphasis on increasing volume rather than putting the emphasis on increasing strength. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you don't want to see that drop off either. And I don't think they're necessarily the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've talked to, I've talked to Eric Helms about this and I think that's where it's, it's volume across sets, I think is, is, would be like, what can you do across the sets would, would be a pretty good indicator of if you've gotten, if you've, if you've adapted, if you, if you put on muscle and the, kind of the analogy that I think of about that that's kind of coming to me right now is you have you essentially we all you have this radio right and I, I think what Israel is doing is like he's playing with that volume dial a lot more he's like going up and down whereas I'm more of a fan of of keeping of slowly kind of dialing that up and I think what what Ethan's almost like throwing in the mix is like hey let's let's change the CD every once in a while and then and then we maybe don't have to mess and and that's going to necessarily that's going to change the volume based on what we're trying to what we're trying to do yeah um, as your training partner I, w I would really like to see you train change the cd more often for sure <laughs> my me <laughs> yeah your your cd yeah for sure oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> specifically the music yeah <laughs> just the music. Yeah, yeah. Oh, if we could change the playlist every once in a while that'd be that'd be awesome all right, all right. Yeah. yeah i mean ben <laughs> I, i'm on the same page with you there I, i've thought a lot about just the idea of these like short mesocycles where, you know, you're cranking up the volume, you know, really quickly via sets and then also increasing, you know, load if you can along, along with that. Um, I'm, I'm much more in the low and slow camp where I want to see those escalations on a macro level. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I do think there, there's going to be sort of an optimal length of a mesocycle for reasons that may even fall outside of progress. And, and, and I think that's kind of where this like changing the CD thing comes into place is you have to, you know, once again, we have this like um, overall macro view of where we want to go. We've broken it down into um, sort of like blocks. And then, and then we've tried to identify what the constituent parts of those blocks are. Uh, you, you want to ask, like, how long do we push a specific goal? Because I, I think a lot of what we're talking about is predicated on you're just doing the same thing forever. And I think based on other constraints, you just don't do that. What I mean is, like, you know, if the model is, okay, here's where we're going to increase volume and then we're going to deload, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. I just don't think a year really looks like that. I think you need to look at a year in the context of all the other uh, – you know, training, recovery, lifestyle factors, map out the year and realize that not every part of the year are you trying to sort of move in a linear direction. And when you when you are trying to push things up linearly, you want all of those vectors sort of, you know, rowing together, so to speak. So it's not necessarily just changing for the sake of changing. 
it's, you know, having a plan for a year or multiple years and then breaking that down into blocks and saying, well, this isn't sustainable for this, this and this reason. And this is the time period that I can do it for. Uh, these are the vectors that I can increase in this time period. And when I come back to the same exact thing next time, I want to do a little bit more. So mm -hmm. I'm not really looking at it as I want to make these massive changes in the short amount of time, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. I'm looking at it like I want to make uh, if, if you were just increasing load, for example, versus increasing sets, what you'd find is that the you know, total amalgam of work would would move up a lot slower. So if you were to do, you know, um, like a renaissance periodization block where you were ramping up the volume, you know, over a mesocycle or ramping up the sets rather over a mesocycle, you'd find that this like total amalgam of work moved up pretty quickly. Whereas if you just hung out sort of in the mid range of those sets or the lower range of those total sets and, and you increased um, load on the bar that the total work or the total volume would not increase as quickly. Um, I'm looking at potentially using sort of a mix of the two to have, you know, a moderate increase of total work over a mesocycle. But then when you return to that mesocycle next time, you know, could you add a few sets here or there? And then over time on a macro level, how are you increasing volume? I think right now we're just really, really focused on the micro details of increasing total work when what we need to be thinking about is what's the career goal? Like, where do yeah. I need to go long-term and how do I, you know, how can I increase that over a career? Not how can I increase that over a macro, meso or micro cycle? And I think once we start there, where do we need to go over a career? Then we can start to look at, okay, how do I, you know, low and slow sort of bit by bit, add that over time to get to my eventual goal. And we look at, you know, everything else this way. I'm not sure why, you know, with training, you know, if it were akin to nutrition, I'm not sure why, you know, I, I would start at 2000 calories and end of phase at 6000 calories. You just wouldn't do that. It's not necessary. Could you and not die? Like, sure, you could. Like, you could get away with the consequences of that, but it's not necessary. So I just want to add, you know, I, I, I want to add as, as much as I can to progress, but I'm not necessarily trying to find the very top end of that. I just, I want to find, you know, where am I going to be, you know, in, in, in 10 years and how can I sort of, you know, create a, 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 an action over time to eventually get me there. Mm -hmm. And that, that just takes a whole nother level of, of, of tracking. And I think like what people may not know in the context, and we haven't done a good job of explaining this is like, how long have you been collecting data on yourself? You're asking me personally? Yeah, well, Ryan's been collecting data since he was nine. So, but <laughs> but this seems but, but yeah, this I mean, seems I, to be a huge theme in the bodybuilding world. Is like people are they they have they're collecting data for really really long periods of time and then comparing that historically, like, hey, how much volume did I do at this time? Where am I? Where am I going? And you just don't see that. I, I don't think you see that with with really anyone else in in the training world doing. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but. Um, I think that's that's the important concept. Generally, nobody in the general population has any idea of what they did, you know, three weeks ago. Uh, and so, yeah. And if you're getting stronger over time, I think that you are improving that, you know. But are you improving that as much as you could be if you, you were including, you know, say sets, for example? So 
Yeah, literally just improving strength over time is going to mean you're doing more work if you don't change the training program. Um, but if we if we want to aim to increase total work as much as possible, you know, I think looking at other things like sets, for example, is is a, a better way to do it. Yeah, yeah, you know, I've gotten to the point with with programming where I think as long as you can justify how this is going to help you in a year from now to be able to handle more, I think it's probably justified. You know, and I'll run some certain blocks that make zero sense from a hypertrophy standpoint, but it all builds into something. And that may be theoretical and this idea of like phase potentiation, but I think that there's there's a lot of benefit to that stuff. And it just has to, it, it it's not about like building muscle in the next three weeks. It's about doing it over the next three years and decades. And uh, I, I think that there's, anything can really work. Like we know that. So can you find a way to, pull it back to the end goal and is it going to allow you to, to handle more just stress essentially? Um, I think and the psychological aspect of it. I think that's, like, yeah. we run it. When you mentioned Ronnie Coleman, I immediately was like, well, could Ronnie Coleman have, you know, not done so much compound work and done more single joint work and not be so messed up. But part of, part of his persona was doing that. And mm -hmm. so like that, I know a lot of all of us have run more generalized programs and we from a from a hypertrophy standpoint maybe even from a strength program pro point we like standpoint we haven't really gotten very good results but I don't think of that work as being non beneficial I think of it no. as being being like all right I got to I got to compete I got to do this stuff with with my community for a little bit and then I'm going to hole out and and you know do do this other stuff for a little while but maybe you either both of you guys want to comment on that, like the where are you picking up this volume from a multi joint perspective or from more single joint, more more internal focus type stuff? Yeah, go ahead, Ethan. Uh, yeah, I guess in in regards to sort of varying the stimulus there, I mean, I think the appropriate time to do that is when you can no longer move forward on whatever your primary goal is. So totally. I mean maybe that's because you can't eat anymore and maybe you've determined, all right, like I can push calories for, you know, eight, 12 weeks or whatever it is. And then I sort of need to switch that. Or, you know, you, you push a, a particular vector that you have available to you and you're like, all right, that sort of runs its course during this time period for whatever reason, you know, what I need to do, um, you know, from one particular area, if that's Ronnie Coleman, you know, maybe he can push drugs for, you know, 16 weeks before, you know, he suffers consequences, you know, from a health standpoint. Okay. So how long is this hypertrophy block going to be? Boom, 16 weeks. And, mm. you know, as far as the compound lifts go, I guess what we'd have to take into account is, you know, if you were to split those compound lifts, you know, up into say like isolation, you know, or, you know, sort of lifts with more points of contact, more reference, whatever you want to call it. You know, how many of those lifts does it take to replace a compound lift? Like how much time in the gym is that really? Like, again, we can't really quantify that. So by doing the compound lifts, it's, it's almost just like in one way, you're taking a bet. You're like, you know, I'm being more efficient with my time. I know that I'm doing more total, I know that I'm doing more total work here. Um, but there's also sort of the, the risk that, that comes along with that. 
Um, so, you, you know, that's, that's something you have to weigh uh, based on a, a multitude of factors. I, I was listening to your podcast uh, with Zach Couples, actually, and then the follow-up you guys did with that. And I think there's some important talking points in that as well. Like, where does that stuff fit in? You know, where does sort of compound lifts and, you know, that, that thought process of sort of movement variability and sensory motor competencies, where does that all fit into it? But I think it's, it's sort of in, in that same realm is there's just this cost-benefit you know, to, to everything we're doing and you have to find that, that appropriate, um, realm for you. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like what you were saying with the different phases is that you, I think you almost know when it's time to switch gears a little bit, or you learn that over time. And that may be the bench press for you. Like you might find that you can do eight sets of bench press per week. And then after that, like you're, elbows start feeling jacked up or whatever it is and then maybe at that point it's time to throw in some flies like i would look at multi-joint exercises as being very general it's almost like doing a uh, a program like the 3030, which happens to have a lot of multi-joint exercises in it like why not do that until it stops working it's extremely general like you're going to get a lot of adaptations in a lot of different systems and but if you're getting the result that you want for a period of time, why not do that? And I kind of look at multi-joint exercises in, in a similar way and that once that starts to wear out, then it might be time to start adding some things that in that are more specific. And it may be very specific to the muscle that you're trying to work. Like you might find, for instance, uh, you know, because there's no other exercises other than bench press and squats um, that you, you, you can do only so many bench presses and like you don't even feel like you're, you know, you're triceps are getting any kind of stimulation at some point. So then it's time to start adding in tricep extensions or whatever it is. Um, so I think it kind of just depends on where you are in the career and where, uh, what you've worn out up until that point and using those isolation exercises as, as very specific things when needed. Yeah. So it's like you're using them to solve a problem. I, I, I mm -hmm. think that's the thing is like, you're not automatically just throwing out those things because that's the most efficient way to get the job done at the time. But if you get to the point where you can't uh, add more volume or, or you can't accomplish whatever need that you have through these compound lifts for whatever reason, you know, then you reanalyze the situation. So, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, and, it, and it's all on a continuum. It's not like we have to say like, these are compound lifts, these are, you know, machine or isolation lifts, you know, it's, it's literally a spectrum. So if you look at like, you know, um, let's say a back squat versus, you know, a safety bar squat with a wedge, um, you know, does that become more like a machine? And then you go to a hack squat and a leg press, like they're, they're all kind of machines. It's mm -hmm. literally just the spectrum of how many points of contact, how much reference you have. So I don't necessarily look at them as like, these are compound lifts. These are more dangerous. Like it, it kind of depends on who we're talking about, what equipment you have access to, because, you know, for me using, you know, the transformer bar squat with a, with a big reach, um, with, you know, a, a a nice size uh, wedge underneath me that almost that might as well be a machine in terms of the way that allows me to move. Uh -huh. So, you know, there is a lot of benefit to that, you know, and a lot of efficiency that I get out of that. And, you know, I, I don't tend to leave with a ton of cost from like a, a joint perspective. 
Um, so you're, you're always just like re-examining, like, can I get to where I need to get to with the tools that I have? And if not, you know, would we maybe put some other tools in their place? But if they're the most efficient way to get there, like you always want mo more efficient. You don't yeah. want multiple ways to accomplish one thing. So you, you only necessarily take that out if there's a problem or if it's not solving the problem that you have. So you're just analyzing like, what's the problem that I have? It's sort of like a needs analysis. And then you're saying, what tools do I need to solve that problem? And if, you know, a, if a back squat is not the tool that you need to solve that problem, which it's not for me and a deadlift from the floor, you know, is not that tool for me, then I might use a safety bar squat with a wedge and I might use an RDL and that solves the need that I have a lot better than those other tools. But I don't necessarily, it doesn't have to be like, is it a compound lift? Is it an isolation? Is it a machine? It's just, that was the right tool for the right job. Uh, it, it, it might be called hammer strength. It might be called, you know, a wedge. It might be called a barbell or a kettlebell, but it just solves the need. Yep. Yep. So do you, from, uh, I'm trying to play the devil's advocate here in that, we talk a lot about systemic fatigue throughout the week or even throughout the, the mesocycle or the macro cycle. Do you think in this idea of like total sets per week, it seems to me like we might be able to do maybe efficiency really isn't our goal. If, if we can do more work in the week by doing these single joint exercises that have a lower cost systemically, maybe that could be beneficial, but that then you're going to, when that's a problem, then you kind of, you probably naturally move that way anyways. Do you get that? Do you kind of get that question? Like if I can take, if I can take systemic fatigue down, like what's the, what's the systemic cost of a back squat versus a leg press versus a leg extension and a leg curl? I think the leg extension and leg curl systemically is going to have a lot lower cost than, than definitely than the back squat, but also than the leg press too. Mm -hmm. I guess it just becomes uh, a question of, of time, um, which is which is a legit question for a lot of people. But I don't think a legit question if you're advanced, advanced. I think if you're if if you're making these kinds of life decisions based off career, then if that's a viable option to do more work, I don't know. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you would ask again from that sort of like needs analysis perspective, you would ask, what am I getting out of the squat? Right. And can I fill that need somewhere else? Like, can I fill that need in a leg extension? I can't fill that need in a leg extension. No, like they're, they're very different resistance profiles. Like they're very different. Uh, you know, they're working different muscles, even like, you know, you're getting a lot of adductor, a lot of glute in the squat, it, it becomes very difficult to quantify actually what you are getting out of the squat. Uh, but at least in that example, you couldn't compare one to one. And then you'd have to say, well, you know, what is one to one? Would it have to be, you know, a leg press and a leg extension? It, so it becomes very difficult to quantify. I think you want to spread out your stress as much as possible in, in terms of sort of like the way that you're, the muscles that you're loading and the way that you're loading them. Um, if you had, if, squat wasn't the right tool based on the equipment you had available, but you had a hack squat maybe, and that allowed you to overload, you know, the quads in a lengthened position, you know, better um, because of, you know, the back support, the, the, the reference, the points of contact that you had there, you know, maybe 
the uh, the hack squat has sort of a built-in heel wedge to it, so you can drive your knees over your toes, then then it's adequately solving that problem. But for me, you know, the hack squat doesn't necessarily solve the problem if I have, you know, the transformer bar squat. I actually, you know, can, can uh, get what I want out of the transformer bar squat adequately. And then what I say, like, is the hack squat less stressful than the transformer bar squat? Yeah. I don't know. And then the, it's probably because you're getting some extra things out of the transformer bar squat muscle wise that you might not be out of the hack squat. So it becomes difficult to quantify. Um, but I think at the end of the day, like you're not trading a leg extension for a squat. Um, so it's not, you're not going to have this massive reduction, you know, in systemic fatigue that you would, if you just say, you know, I'm just going to I'm just going to do leg extension and leg curls, you know, instead of squats. And it's like, I, I, that, I don't think that's the same thing. Yeah, intuitively, I don't think it is either, you know, but I'm, I'm also having a little bit of trouble understanding why it wouldn't be because you are still getting local fatigue in the, in the muscle, you know, so I'm, I'm intuitively like, I'm just not going to do that myself. And I probably wouldn't even program it for my, my clients because it's going to be fucking boring. Like, and it's just, there's something that we feel like this, it has to be work, you know, in order for it to actually work. But I don't, I don't know if that's, if that's truly the case, but you, you mentioned like resistance curves and maybe, maybe that's worth just going into for like really briefly for people that don't know what that is. So could you just maybe explain, we could just use real quickly the, uh, the example of the, the leg extension versus the squat, like what is a resistance curve and, uh, like how, how do they differ in those two exercises? Yeah, just first quickly, I, I would say that, you know, b before even the resistance profile thing, it, it's just that you're hitting different muscles, right? Like the reason you can't necessarily replace a leg extension, you know, in a leg curl for a squat is because a leg extension, even though it might train, uh, you know, some of the quads and, you know, squat might train, you know, different quads, but also at different uh, points in those quads, um, you're also looking at other muscles like adductors and, and, and glutes, for example, that you're not going to get. So it's not just that one muscle that's being worked. There's multiple muscles. But as far as like the resistance profile, it, it's just simply like where's the exercise hardest? And squats hardest at the bottom, leg extensions hardest at the top. Uh, just just put, you know, in very simple terms. Mm -hmm. okay. So that would be a, a linear ascending, a strength would be a linear ascending strength curve because it's it's the hardest in the bottom, whereas a leg extension would be the opposite because it's hardest at the top. And so my big thing is like, so the limiter in the squat would be most likely in that bottom position if it's not banded up. And that means that the limiter is the adductor and you're not going to be able to train, you're not going to be able to train the rectus femoris. You're not going to be able to simulate that much at all. So yeah, you're you're getting this multitude of factors with the squat, but it's and, and yes, we can't necessarily quantify that versus uh, versus a machine, but that's kind of the problem to me. Like, could I replace a squat with five machines and then overload the shit out of it? Like, yeah, that's not how the, it's not how the body's maybe supposed to work, but in theory, to me, that seems like it could be a better hypertrophy stimulus because you are over. You know that you are overloading each of those muscles. Yeah. Instead of dissipating the stress over five different muscles, you're just working one specific. I, that's where I think like over a training career, that might be really important to do over time. I think then you're, you're what, two things like one, 
you're you're talking about maybe four or five different exercises at that point and you know there's not just the systemic stress of like you know doing a set of squats but when you add four or five exercises to your routine like one the more time you're spending in there like usually you're getting a little bit worse weaker as you as you go on Mm -hmm. um and and there's fatigue just from the that total you know volume of sets or time spent in the gym like there's fatigue associated with that too it might be a different type of fatigue also remember that like yes there's systemic fatigue but you want part of like part of that systemic fatigue is you need from like an adaptive perspective now if you're advanced and you you know have decent cardiovascular health and your goal is not to be you know maybe 300 pounds um maybe it's not as important but you know some degree of like systemic stress in your week is, is not a bad thing like even though we're trying to mitigate that to a degree i don't think we need to completely remove it and and i also think by the time you're advanced like remember you're probably already doing all that other stuff like you probably already have a lot of those other exercises in the mix so mm-hmm. now what you're saying is all right i have four sets of leg extensions four sets of you know uh adductors four sets of you know some kind of glute yeah glute kickback or some shit whatever right and and you're like okay now i gotta do eight sets of that and it's Mm -hmm. like well hello by the time you get to set five like is that still significant uh tension like you're not able to necessarily you know maintain the same loads throughout those sets so it's all hypothetical but i think you have to assess those questions when you get there and then choose the right tool for the right job but we would we would never start someone. I don't think any of us are necessarily starting our clients with that paradigm. I, I would say when we're talking about body composition clients, I mean I'm certainly not teaching them to Olympic lift. It's not my goal for them to be you know doing back squats or deadlifts off the floor. Like I want to pick relatively safe exercises. But most programs are still starting with compound lifts because they're the most bang for your buck. Yeah. So if we're starting with that person just walk through time, you know, eventually you get to a point where you have to make these decisions. And maybe we've already made those decisions for our own personal reasons. But somewhere along the line from that first program we wrote, where we looked at the science, we said, okay, we're going to do 10 sets, you know, per muscle group or whatever we want to do. We're going to use compound lifts because it's efficient. You know, we don't know that this is what we want to do with the rest of our life. So we're going to spend, you know, only a few hours a week doing it. And then somewhere along that line, you had to make decisions and you had to sort of take, you know, a, a cost benefit analysis and you found your way here. Um, but we're sort of asking like, not necessarily just where do we go? Like, where does everyone else go? And, and I think we still started at the same place. And at some point you have to ask yourself, you know, those questions and, and, and weigh the, you know, the costs and benefits. Uh, so it's probably not on day one that we have a program that's like all machines but there could be a case for it yeah I, I would imagine that's not everybody so yeah 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 i think i think i love this idea of, of just looking at from a cost benefit perspective like what what is i think a lot of times we don't we don't necessarily think about what is lacking in an exercise and you know what's what's lacking like what are we trying and if you're thinking about most people are just trying to get some kind of exercise stimulus, but, but for us, we're trying to get a specific stimulus on specific muscles. And that probably meets the need for some muscles and not others, but it's going to be, I, 
Ethan and I were talking, and and so that's when you squat, you're essentially training the quads in a lengthened position. You're probably not doing much from for the hamstrings. Is it, is it cat walking on someone's keyboard or like? Uh, I was eating more Scandinavian swimmers. Uh, I thought the, the video was off, and I thought it'd be fair for me to eat. Uh, I didn't think you guys would notice, and you did. And I'm embarrassed. I carry on. So, <laughs> uh, no, so so Scandinavian swimmers are gummy bears, um, and that, that Ryan likes to eat. And, and so the they're they're delicious, and he's using a gaining protocol, and we don't want to take that away from. Don't him. speak to me while I'm eating. And so when we think about like what's what's lacking in the squat, Ethan, what do you because you're already making you're making adaptations to a back squat to to pick up what's lacking by using that transformer bar and that wedge. So talk us through your thought process of why you even made that switch. Yeah, so that kind of goes to, you know, what you were talking about with Zach, um, which is, you know, just delineating between a squat and a deadlift and um you know the transformer bar squat because it allows you to reach uh, your arms forward and it gives you uh and the wedge also because it puts you um uh puts you in plantar flexion and not just from a mechanical standpoint but also just from a um sort of sensory standpoint just allows you to shift backwards in space like the reach and the and the wedge uh give you sort of a, a a sensory and mechanical advantage to just shift backwards in space and, and counter nutate your pelvis um that allows me to basically keep you know my, my skull stacked over my my pelvis or you know um sacrum sternum you know sphenoid all, all those things kind of stacked over each other and, you know, be able to descend in that position while driving my knees forward. And, and the further my knees move away from, uh, you know, the center of mass or from, from the, the bar itself or from the load, uh, the more I'm ultimately loading the quads and the less or the more I'm loading things on the front side, the less I'm loading things on the back side. So you could just picture if that bar was dropping straight down and my butt was moving backwards that, you know, my butt would be moving further away from the bar uh, versus if the bar was dropping straight down and my knees were moving forward and my butt was staying underneath me that, you know, my knees would be moving further from the bar. So in that case, I'm, I'm loading the quads more because I'm asking myself, you know, what do I want on this day? And, you know, the answer to that might be, you know, training quads in a lengthened position along with, you know, getting some glutes and adductors out of it. And that's the ideal position to get into. And that's the amount of, uh, sensory reference and also sort of mechanical orientation that I need to be able to achieve that position, but also achieve that position in a full range. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Which gets like, this is kind of where I get, I get disgruntled a little bit at, at our, at, at at the things that we love. Cause I, I have a huge confirmation bias and I, I, you know, I want, I want this to be right. I like. I want Zach Couples to be right. I want this to be important. But if you look at the literature that we have right now, and, and yes, these people aren't squatting the same way that you're squatting, and I think I think we we need to do our due diligence and we need to we need to add to the literature on this. Is that like when you look at a prototypical back squat to a front squat, you do not see a difference in quad activation, and so 
that would be that would be my big thing is like I I I 100% I agree with you in in making that switch. It's just like I think we need to we need to get some research on this to say that you know this is this is a yes it's a viable option from a positional standpoint and maybe you're not going to get as messed up. But are we really getting more quads in that exercise? I mean, I think when you just look at it from a physics perspective, I mean, if you're talking about it from an exercise perspective, you know, you can do different things with your body. But just simply from a lever's perspective, like, I don't know, it's just one of those things like you can you can study. And and, and I know that, you know, we, we've definitely solved some of those. Like, there were definitely some things we believed were work more in a squat. Like, I think people for a long time thought hamstrings were a bigger player, at least, you know, from a concentric standpoint in the squat than they actually are. And, you know, maybe less so with adductors, and that's changed a little bit over time. Um, in, in this particular case, whether, you know, obviously we know both quads and glutes, you know, and adductors, they're, they're all working. And, you know, to what extent changes person to person and, and based on their levers. But if you're changing physics, I mean, physics are pretty, like, pretty straightforward. By physics, you, know, you it, mean driving more knees over toes? You just create like, a moment if, arm if at the can, knee. If you can just draw a line, like, I mean, if, if you were to just use dartfish, draw a line, and you have a longer lever in one direction, I mean, that has to change something. Like, yeah, we can we can study these concepts, but, like, physics don't really change. Mm -hmm. If you make a longer lever on one end, like, that changes something every single time. Yeah, we're also relying on, like, EMG data to, to assess that as well, which isn't super accurate. I, I just don't even know if that's really, like, a... I mean, we we could study that, but it, it just seems like that's a pretty straightforward concept. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I would agree, and I think uh, there'd be so much argument on that. Like, cause uh, the, cause yeah, I mean, just just think of it this way: the... like, if you're doing a lateral raise, you know, and you have and you, you pick it up to the top of that lift and you hold it out far away from your body, it's harder at the top for a reason. It's be because that moment arm is longer it's you know it's kind of the same principle so, like you don't really have to study like is a lateral raise you know harder yeah to but hold but where but for the quads there you're are you really getting that much so the quad because you're not getting rectus there so the quad is essentially just extending the knee <sighs> yeah you're taking it through a greater range of motion and that in that respect, um, but how you know, much? Think, how much? I don't. I don't know. I mean, well, how much does it take? You know, for if you're if you're back squatting with 500 pounds, it, it doesn't take a whole lot of deviation for that not to work out. If you think about how much of a change you need in the lever arm to fall on your face, it's not very much. Um, so, and I don't know how to quantify that, but it's got to do something. I would, <laughs> so, I would. I would also just say like when. Even if we just have things that are significantly different, even if you just say, this is a squat where, you know, you're sitting all the way back. This is a squat where your knees are going forward and maybe you're using a machine to do it. You know, like, let's just take like, it's like saying, you know, is a leg extension and a leg press different? They both work the quads. Does one work the quad more than the other one? Are they different? They're different. Do we, do we treat them as separate and different exercises or do we just do leg presses? No, we do leg presses and leg extensions because 
we see them as significantly different. We put them in different buckets. And I think that's all we're trying to do is we're just trying to put things in buckets. Like we may, we may be wrong. Like I may be wrong about exactly what bucket this thing is. And that's fine. I have no like, you know, emotional tie to that. But all I'm saying is that, you know, we we're creating buckets and we're differentiating into, into these things we call exercises. And we want more differentiation so that we can spread out stress. And that's why we call something a deadlift. We call something a squat. We call something a leg extension. We call something a leg press. Like, yeah, a leg extension and a leg press both work the quads. But if they were the same, then we would just do one of them. But we don't. Uh-huh. So it's just like using a specific stimulus for a specific adaptation. I think that's what it comes down to. And that's kind of where I'm at currently with all of this stuff As I'm looking at, like, I want to learn how to do this type of squat so I have more variance in movement, whatever. But I, I think it's also going to carry over. If I can get stronger in these positions that I'm super weak in, it's probably going to benefit me, just like going from a front squat to a back squat. Like, that's why we run those cycles where we're using supplemental exercises or accessory exercises in, in powerlifting. So I, I'm kind of looking at it as the same thing, like not necessarily like you will, I will never low bar back squat again, or I'll never let someone back squat with their ass out to some degree ever again. I'm not, I'm definitely not there with it. I'm just looking at it like in this particular phase of training for this specific person, for this specific reason, we're trying to do this. And then like, you know, you said, Ethan, we have different buckets that maybe we're incorrect about where it goes, but at some point we're, we're training that quality. That's probably going to benefit us. And I, and I think, you know, again, with efficiency in mind that ideally, you know, with loading some of these positions, like in partial ranges, because that's all we can get into. uh, I think ideally if we have better equipment, then we can potentially, you know, go through the full range of motion like within these positions, you know, for example, like let's say you didn't have a wedge and you didn't have a safety bar squat and you could only do, you know, partial reps, you know, with say a front squat and still be able to maintain that stack position. Um, I think you almost want to train that quality separately. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I think the problem is like, you can't even train that quality with body weight. Like, you're literally too weak to do a lot of these things with body weight. And you might want to start from the ground and sort of work your way up mm-hmm. on the opposite end. And then as far as loading goes, ideally have the equipment that allows you to go through the full excursion, like of those ranges of motion, because you have the points of reference to do so, or you have the support. And again, looking at exercises on a continuum that it's not like we have to do this, uh, you know, standing unsupported, but we can provide more and more reference to the point where you're literally, you know, supine, you know, on a leg press. And that's just more reference, less, um, you, you know, being assisted by gravity to do it, but it's still the same, you know, we're, we're still accomplishing the same thing. If, mm-hmm. you know, you're stacked because you have a machine that's stacking you, you're still accomplishing the same thing. I would say be most efficient with your loading, um, by using sort of the right tools to allow you to use the least amount of exercises possible to, you know, accomplish, you know, the total work that you want to do. And then on the opposite end of that, if there's positions that you can't get into um, and you're not strong enough to maintain, 
you work them up the same way you would have worked any other exercise up. Like if you couldn't, you know, um, if you were learning to squat for the first time, you wouldn't necessarily put, you know, the same amount of weight as someone who's been training for 10 years and just squat quarter depth. You know, you, you would start with the bar or start by learning the movement. And, and I think the same thing goes for these concepts as well is that, you know, especially when you're talking about a lifter and the point is, you know, we want to increase some degree of variability and possibly, you know, allow for better recovery and even, you know, injury prevention outside of training, you know, just being able to get into the positions, like literally just being able, um, you know, to go from a point of sort of like a, a sympathetic, like anteriorly driven state to being able to just attain the positions without load um, you know, is a pretty big accomplishment. Obviously, ideally, you would have taken someone who never lost that variability, you would have introduced them to these exercises, you would load them through the full ranges. But the problem is, even that person, every time, not even if they kept the perfect movements, even just with that added sort of sympathetic stress, you, they would be bouncing in and out of these states anyway. And it would be sort of incumbent on their lifestyle and their stress management, not even just, you know, the quality of their movement, but literally the quality of their life and their environment to be able to maintain those positions. So like either way, it's going to be a push and pull. Um, I think for the person, you know, who's got 10, 15 years of, of lifting experience behind them and is potentially a little bit more rigid, um, that the right approach, I, I don't think in my, in my mind right now is not to necessarily like loaded up crazy heavy and just go through that partial range. I, th I think you should try to attain, attain that full range, you know, from one end without necessarily, you know, using the same loads that you would, or, or, or trying to go close to the same loads or in the same manner that you would for other exercises. Uh, whilst with your exercise or your, your loading scheme, using exercises that allow you to attain those positions because you have the proper amount of support reference you know, uh, you know, assistance from gravity, all that kind of stuff. Like that's where, you know, machines and equipment are going to help you get into those positions. Mm -hmm. So I guess the question is like, do you even, if you have access to that kind of stuff, do you even bother? Is there really any benefit to learning how to, for instance, like we're talking about the squat, like learning how to squat like that. Do you just use things that have references. I think you use the least amount that you need, mm -hmm. right? So like if you can, if you can get into it and, and that's the exercise you need based on what muscles and what positions you're trying to load it, then great. Um, but for example, like if you use the safety bar squat with the wedge and you can't get into that position, but if you get on a hack squat, you can, then why would, I don't want to use two exercises to achieve what I could with one. I'm just going to use the hack squat. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and then eventually, like, then you could say, well, eventually could I get to the safety bar squat? Maybe, maybe, but it's not necessarily the goal. Yeah. yeah you know, you're just, you're, you're just trying to fill that need. Mm -hmm. That need is you want to train these muscles in a particular way. And if the way that the most efficient way, meaning the least amount of exercises and, and not just least amount of exercises because it takes the least amount of time, but also, again, there's stress associated with being in the gym more time, doing more sets, like doing more sets has a cost. It's mm -hmm. not free. 
Yeah. Um, so efficiency is always important. So yeah, you want to do it with the least amount of exercises. And on the back end, you know, if you can work on getting into those positions the same way you would have learned anything else with, you know, the sort of most or the least amount of sensory reference, the most amount of stress that you can handle, um, you know, to be able to sort of fully go through that respiratory cycle with, you know, say the unloaded squat or sideline positions or all fours positions, whatever it is, like chances are you can't do those now. Is Ethan still, is he, is the dog still barking? Um, I would imagine. Oh, yes. We're good. We're good. Uh, yeah, yeah. Good. All right. He's back. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll... That, was, that was my grocery delivery. Uh, uh, they're, they're bringing food to you. I will try. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll do some editing on this work on this video. It's good. Um, does anybody have to get out of here from a time perspective? I'm good. I'm cool. Okay. I, mean, um, I might, I might need more swimmers, but I think I'm all right. Just, just mute them next. Mute it next time that you open the bag. Well, you, you guys can hear that. So, like, what was your? What was your big takeaway? Because I know you have you seen Zach speak? Have you been to that course? I know he was up in New York. I have, yeah. And so what when and none of that stuff is new to you. You've been you've been working with Pat, you've gone through all the PR you've you've been through pretty much every PRI course. Um and, and so how what's the what's the cost benefit to you of of say low bar back squatting? Uh, cost benefit. I mean, for me, again, it doesn't really solve any, like it, it doesn't necessarily fill any box better than the exercises that I have. Um, I would just say from experience in the past, well, look, for me, back squatting is not really an option. I've had surgery on both shoulders. I, I literally can't reach the bar. Um, so that's kind of how I got to where I was is like, you know, forget all the, you know, stacking, uh, you know, skull over pelvis kind of stuff. I, I can't even reach the bar in, in a back squat. So that's literally not even an option for me. Um, so that's part of how I actually got to where I am now before even, you know, PRI came into the picture. I mean, I was using safety bar squats maybe a decade ago. And so how would you like from a, from either Ryan or I's perspective, how would you go through that cost benefit analysis of like, Hey, the back squat, a low bar back squat doesn't fit this box, but it does, it does do this thing. There's just a better thing that does that thing. Is that kind of, is that kind of thought process there? Like, well, if I'm trying to do that, what am, what am I trying to get with a low bar back squat? What are we, what are we trying to get there, Ryan? Uh, for for me, it's just like the only place that I'm going to ever program that for someone is if they are a competitive powerlifter or they have aspirations to, to be a powerlifter. Uh, so for me personally and for my clients, that's the only real place that I see it because I, I do – I just don't think it's going to really do what I want it to do uh, from like a, a hypertrophy perspective or even a performance perspective. If that's what we're going after, like I just – I don't think I'm going to really get what I want. So – like with that specific exercise, like it doesn't, it, it's not super relevant unless someone has to do that specifically. Even when I have powerlifter, I mean, the majority of my powerlifters don't even low bar back squat most of the year. 
And that, so that's what's my... our cost? Like, I'm trying to like, if we're, 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 we're talking about like cost benefit relationships and opportunity costs, like what is, what's the, what's the potential cost of a low bar back squat An injury not yeah. getting quads. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it's just like, I look at a low bar back squat as just being like, like animalistic. Like it's just, there's, it's so like primal like what you're going to do when you get into a low bar back squat for most people that I don't even know that I have to train it that much. So I would rather train the things that are difficult in a squat. Like the hardest thing, like the, the main thing in a squat that you're trying to avoid is falling forward. When you fall forward, you lose the bar. So I'm going to train things that I know are going to train that quality a lot harder. So something like a front squat or uh, even a high bar back squat or maybe pause low bar squats or some, something of that nature. Because I think once I get them to just go on a low bar back squat, th that's always going to be there. I don't think I really have to train that that hard. It's pretty damn easy. Um, so I would rather just train the things that I know are going to be the limiting factors. And even even if it is someone who's interested in ultimately increasing their low bar squat, because yeah, I think that that um, it's it's not just an injury thing. I don't I don't necessarily think that low bar back squats like get people injured. But I think there's a lot of other qualities within that squat that are limiting factors. And I would rather go after those uh, and then just let them rip when it's time to go. So what we're saying I mean, is uh, what we're saying is it's mostly like with all with these exercise selection based decisions, it's mostly an opportunity cost issue. And that so the benefit of, of low bar back squatting, potentially being able to put more load on the bar is not over it's not essentially exceeding the opportunity cost of there being other exercises that could potentially get you more what more muscle activation more more hyper like that's what i'm that's what i'm struggling here from from like our our analysis yeah. of this. so i mean the, the deadlift is something that i've an, I analyzed in this way right uh that's a better example for me I, I'll, I'll go into the squat too but like I, I do look at it from an injury risk perspective and the reality for me with either one of those exercises for sure. Like the reason I stopped back squatting was because of, you know, the shoulder issues. I couldn't reach the bar. If I did reach the bar, the bar was so torqued that I always had hip problems. I mean, I back squatted growing up. I had, um, you know, like in, in, in high school and I had plenty of injuries, uh, back squatting. I found the same thing with deadlifting. Like the only time I ever got injured uh, low back wise was deadlifting. And, you know, I, I could isolate my hamstrings a lot better doing uh, the RDL and get a little bit better eccentric component doing the RDL. So for me, when we're talking about cost benefit, yeah, a lot of it does come down to injury. And I think the other thing with the back squat and potentially with the deadlift too is because they're so systemic and, and I don't just mean systemic as far as like, you know, metabolically taxing, but that they hit so many different muscles and there's so much, uh, axial loading involved, like even the ability to use so much weight on there and the position of the bar sort of relative to your spine, there's a lot of loading on the spine and there's basically a lot of loading throughout you know, just about every muscle in the body. And I think the difficulty there when you're training like a bodybuilder is it becomes difficult to build your split around full body exercises. 
you know, mm-hmm. if you wanted to put like the snatch somewhere in your training week, you know, we, we'd make arguments for why that's not an ideal exercise, you know, for, from a attention standpoint, but also like you don't necessarily want full body exercises if you're breaking your split up by body parts. So I think mm-hmm. that becomes problematic, but yeah, the primary reason for me with like a deadlift, for example, and even with a back squat at the time is, um, I did find, uh, subjectively, and, you know, with observation over the years that more people got injured doing those lifts. I think you find the same thing with the bench press. Uh, and yeah, I actually don't have, I don't have any one of those three exercises in my program. I found, uh, not, I, I the only time I've ever gotten shoulder injuries, uh, from lifting was with a flat bar bench press and, you know, back injuries primarily came with low bar back squatting and, uh, straight bar deadlifting from the floor. I, you know, I incline barbell bench, I RDL, I safety bar squat, and, you know, lots of other, you know, compound lifts in there. But the three power lifts are the exercises that, you know, had the most injury risk for me. And, you know, the, the, the back squat and the, um, well, specifically the deadlift, you know, they're so systemic and train so many different muscles. It makes it very difficult to differentiate, um, between days and to have your training frequency as high as you want to have your training frequency. And that training frequency allows you to drive training volume and training volume again is this big thing that we're trying to increase over time. So thus either through injury or through the fact that it is such a systemic exercise, it limits the amount of training volume that I can accumulate, you know, therefore it's not a good choice because it's, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. You think it's possible that that some people could use that effectively, some of those exercises? Totally. I use them with some of my clients. Yeah, yeah. So I think that it just becomes like an an individual thing in a lot of ways. It's just like, dude, if if your back hurts every time you deadlift and you've learned how to deadlift, like this is not a conversation for people that don't know how to work out. Uh, If you know how to deadlift and it still just doesn't seem to work, then why, why would you be doing it? Like there's just no real reason. Um, so for any, for any exercise, that could be literally anything. So I think that that's like key for everyone to know that this is going to be an individual process. Like you came about those exercises by experimenting. You had to figure that out over time that like those certain things didn't work and the things that you do now are working a hell of a lot better. So, yeah, I mean, they felt, you know, they feel fine when I, when I do them, it's more just like, because they are essentially closer to the edge of the cliff they have a shorter runway. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah. Run, that runway doesn't fit in with the length of time that I want, you know, for a particular goal. Mm-hmm. And that, that's essentially what I do with like, with my powerlifters too. It's like, I know that things, they're just going to start feeling beat up. Like if we, it, it's typically like 16 to 20 weeks and sometimes not even that long that I can do those three lifts with them. So I, we just don't do a ton of that in the off season and they still get stronger. And I don't train any world-class powerlifters at all, you know, that, so maybe I'm not doing things right, but my powerlifters usually stay pretty healthy. Um, and I think you can still get the, the similar training effect from, from other things that just don't beat you down as much. And yeah, maybe that allows you to drive volume more, uh, it allows you to stay healthy, maybe it makes you not dread the gym. Uh, I think all of those things uh, are, are super beneficial. Well, it just seems to me the 
well, I see, I see these other people with their, like their continuums of choices and how they, how they move through different exercises. And it just seems very, very reactive to me. Like if someone has, if someone has knee pain, well, what am I going to do? I'm going to like, I'm going to move them to a low bar back squat or a, a squat to a box so that their knees don't go over their toes. Or if they have low back pain, I'm kind of going to do the opposite of that. Like I, I would move to a front squat or I'd move to it. So it just seems like they're, they're, they're acting almost in this reactionary fashion where if we perhaps pick the right, if we looked at the, the essentially the exercise economics of that individual person, we could maybe just get the best exercise and, and have a longer shelf life on that exercise mm-hmm, mm-hmm. instead yeah. of just like, boom, boom, picking these different tools because you're in this different situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, because they're really, unless you are competing in powerlifting or weightlifting, like there isn't really any particular thing. Oh, I guess CrossFit, but I, I don't want to bring up CrossFit around Ben. So, uh, yeah, I mean, like, it, it, unless there's like certain activities that you have to do, like there, you, you really are, don't have to be married to any one exercise. And you've been able, Ethan, with these exercise, like with your exercise selections, you've been able to stay essentially injury free, which allows you to accrue more work, which is the, which is the show. Dude, uh, anything else that that you guys want to dig into? I think we've covered, we've definitely covered everything on the list of items that that I had. Um, anything that you guys want to jam on? There is the one thing that I don't think we touched on was just um, talking about uh, relationship to failure. I don't know if you guys want to get into that at all because that might be kind of a longer conversation, or or maybe not. But just like, what's the difference between like a six RP and a nine RP, and like what? what is a 10 out of 10 RP? And I don't know if you guys want to get into any of that stuff, but that might be a whole different conversation. Oh, let's Maybe. do it. That's on, how are you? So how we've talked a lot about like quantifying volume, talking about like that. How are you quantifying intensity? Ethan. Yeah. Uh, quantifying intensity. Uh, let me see. Like what would you count as like a, uh, a quality set or like what, what counts towards your volume or, you know, what, is there a certain like a uh, reps of reserve that you're using to determine that? Yeah. You're just keeping like everything at like one or two reps in the tank or. Yeah. Again. So we want to start with like, where are we and where are we trying to move towards? So if you know where you are and, you know, let's, let's just say, for example, you have, you know, four sets, uh, on an, four sets of, you know, bench press and, you know, they're four sets of 10 and you're doing them all at a seven RP. You could add a set to that and continue doing them all at a seven, you know, RP, which would mean that the load uh, may have to change throughout the exercise. You could increase the RP. You could, um, you know, manipulate something like a rest period and that might change, you know, the, the type of stimulus you're looking at. Um, you, you know, you can change even like the reps, you know, within those sets and the amount of times that you hit failure, maybe you hit failure more than once, but you, you know, do a scheme that's maybe like 10, a set of 10, you know, the second set of 10, you hit failure, uh, set of eight, second set of eight you hit failure like there are a lot of ways to manipulate that that are all progressions right that are all technically adding work so i don't again i don't think you have to actually quantify like how much did that add did that add one point of work two points of work or 10 points of work 
it added more work. Um, and it, again, unless we're changing the stimulus, if you're changing the stimulus, keep the stimulus constant and then add something, you know, if you add load to that or you add a set to that, or, you know, you increase the RPE, which would affect, you know, be adding load, it's kind of, it would be the same thing, so then you're doing more work. So given that the stimulus is the same and, and the stimulus would be sort of determined by like your exercise selection, the amount of rest, the tempo, uh, whether or not you're supersetting, what you're supersetting with, um, all those type of variables, given that those are the same, you know, adding load or adding sets, um, is a progression. So I don't think that you have to say how much is a six count, how much is a nine count, you know, just add something over time. I, I usually, I use RPE in the sense of sort of like reps and reserve, but mm -hmm. I let my escalations and load drive that, not the other way around. Um, one thing that I think, like, I, I do think the research shows that train lifters are pretty good at estimating like, you know, reps and reserve. Um, but that's not necessarily looking at whether or not they could have progressed or sort of looking at it over the long term. What I mean by that is the way that we typically choose to put more load on the bar is not because, you know, there's like, you know, trash bags over the weights. We don't know how much weight is on there. And we're like, man, that felt good today. Like, I'm just going to keep going up. Like, typically, train lifters say, I did, you know, 500 pounds last week. I'm going to do 502 pounds this week because that's a decision that I'm making because I need, I know where I need to go over time. Like if, if, if with my nutrition, I just said, you know, the way that I'm going to gain weight is I'm going to eat a little bit more than I did yesterday because, you know, I'm just going to try to eat a little bit more or I'm going to hope that I'm hungrier on that day. Like, fuck no, every day in order to progress anything, whether it be like progressing calories or progressing load on the bar, it's not something that's comfortable for us. And we don't make that decision because we feel like doing it. We make that decision because we have a long-term vision of where we want to go. And, you know, I think that part of the way we overcome our biology is by setting that plan in place. You know, so I have a plan in place every time I come into the gym, you know, for a certain length of time that I'm going to put more load on the bar. I don't, I start from a reasonable level where it's not that every set is the failure. Um, but I have ex experience over time and sort of setting that up. And, you know, I can tell you, you know, what that looks like, but essentially, you know, I'm getting to the place by the end, you know, of a mesocycle where maybe I couldn't add sets or, or I couldn't add load to the bar. Um, but I'm not necessarily looking to, you know, quantify how much a six RPE counts versus a nine RPE. I'm adding more work in some vector, whether that be adding a set or adding load. Um, we know that that's moving us in a right in the right direction. I, I don't feel the need to actually count it in a numerical sense. I just know that load or sets need to move up if they're within the same stimulus. And then I switch you know, if the stimulus changes, then you can only compare that stimulus to the last time you did that stimulus or, or mm -hmm. in other words, under the same constraints. So I want to do more work under the same constraints. And, and I don't want to totally limit my capacity to do that work based on my perception of fatigue in that moment. Now, now that doesn't mean, 
you know, that I have unrealistic expectations of how far I can go. But I think the RPE tends to sort of fill in itself mm-hmm. when you start from the right place and have realistic expectations of where you're going to go. I, I, I personally don't try to quantify, I, I personally don't set up my workouts in a way where RPE is dictating the load moment to moment. Rather, I have a general idea of where I want the RPE to go. And I set up a plan that allows me to escalate that or or, or execute that. And if, you know, I'm not able to execute that plan, I I did something wrong elsewhere. You know, Mm -hmm. like I've executed this time and time again and, you know, under the same constraints, like why am I not able to repeat it? Is it because I've now entered a new macro cycle? I'm in the same stimulus of, you know, repeating that, that, that mesocycle from the last macro cycle and I've added more sets because again, you know, my goal is to increase work over time on a macro level. So maybe I've entered that same stimulus again and I've added more sets, you know, to the, to the same stimulus. And I find that my strength tanks faster before I could go eight weeks and now I can only go six weeks, you know, um, on the stimulus. And, and, And that might be a problem. You know, maybe I've gotten to the point where, okay, you know, I am sort of at the peak number of sets that I can do based on my recovery abilities. And maybe then I need to augment my recovery abilities by whatever means that I have available. Mm-hmm. So it's it's almost like you're looking at um, the work that you want to get done if you're looking at a four-week period or an eight-week period. And then you're kind of using rest and reserve to determine where you need to start. You know, that you know that if you start, if the goal is... 400 pounds for 10 reps by week four, like you, you're not going to be able to start at, you know, 395 for if it's a 10 RP or something like you're trying, it's really a crappy example, but basically you're just trying, you're, you're, it kind of talks, it kind of speaks to what we were talking about earlier, where like, you're not so concerned about this very moment. It's about the entire, uh, training career essentially, or this entire mesocycle or macro cycle, and that you're only using uh, rest of reserve to help you to get what you're ultimately looking for out of that training block or that training phase or whatever it is. In, mo- in most cases, whether it be like, you know, training, nutrition, supplementation, whatever, I'm looking back to where I was before, like where I ended at last time under uh-huh. the same circumstances. I'm starting, you know, a little bit under that, but higher than I started last time. Yep, and yep, then yep. I'm trying to escalate to a point that was higher than before. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Right? Yeah, I mean that's kind of like a that's shit. That's like <laughs> like Mark Ripito. Like that's how he kind of programs all this shit. Like it sounds super basic, but it's like it it ensures progressive overload, essentially, and that's kind of what we're going after over time. Yeah, again, more more work over time by you know by any means. You know, if you can't do more work in some way, like, again, work is, is a is a broad thing, but it's I'm trying to encompass the fact that you can get there a lot of different ways, but that you have to stress the organism, you know, with more of something just to find what that thing is. So, uh, so in this case, if we want hypertrophy, you know, we can go into the mechanisms of hypertrophy. But, for example, one of them, you know, is mechanical tension. And by any means possible, we, we should try to find a way to, to in, you know, uh, induce more mechanical tension than we did previously on a, on a you know, micro, meso, and, and macro level. But that's not going to be linear 
So yeah. that's why it kind of waves up and down a little bit. Mm -hmm. And there's also periods where the advantage of potentially having different stimuli or even if they're not totally different stimuli, even if they just live on a spectrum and they're just perceptually different, they're different enough where it allows you to sort of maintain one capacity as you move on to the next. Not necessarily that you're building some underlying, maybe you are, maybe you aren't building the underlying structural adaptations to sort of drive another stimulus, but you're doing something significantly different. Again, the same way that we bucket exercises and we call them different things, like you wouldn't, your entire leg program wouldn't be leg extensions. Your entire leg program wouldn't be leg press. Your entire training program, you know, wouldn't theoretically be, you know, one set of 10 or three sets of 10. Like all of these things are basically just calling things different. Like we're just, we're identifying things. We're putting them into buckets. We're essentially, you know, um, you know, discriminating between different things and we're, we're putting them in buckets and calling them different. So it's the same thing with training here. You know, we're just trying to find a way to split things up, spread out stress and allow that to be, you know, psychologically and, and physiologically, you know, manageable over time so that we can continue essentially to drive in one direction, but for multiple vectors. Mm -hmm. The the place that I go is is kind of like you guys have the Kaiser X now. I think that we might even be able to take this even one step further in that say so say you did your first your first week was and the first measles mesocycle back in the day was you know four sets of ten at whatever three ninety five and then but you had speed on that you had all of a sudden you had speed on that last rep. And so you could you could go up, and then your next mesocycle, your the next time you do that again, maybe you, maybe you start at four hundred five for ten, and you go faster on that last rep. So now all of a sudden you really do know that you are starting at a very different place, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which which sounds cool to me. And I think you guys might even be able to do that with power, and that because essentially we're being we're, we're with with technology we're we're able to measure more and more things and that's that's probably a problem and also a positive so that's just um if we can be diligent about it and watch the numbers that seems like it could be another way to quantify um something that you're doing almost intuitively well it sounds like that's you know something that you know people in powerlifting like already utilize with with say like a gym aware you know, they're basically using velocity as a proxy for, you know, reps in reserve or RPE. Um, you know, how fast is the bar moving is an indicator of how close you are to failure. So what you're saying is, you know, you basically just use that to quantify progress um, because you're at a lower RPE with the same load. Uh, but then I would say, you know, if you are, add more volume because the goal is not for it to be easier. The goal is not for you to be stronger. The goal is for you to add more total work, you know? So yeah, you could use that. You could say it's subjectively easier. You could say the bar is moving faster. I, I would just say, you know, can you do more total work? And, and your goal should be to increase that. I don't even know if you need to have all these checks and balances um, to that degree. Like, you should attempt to do more work consistently over time in a, in a very like low and slow way. I would just sort of have that in the background and just try to ha have all your, your ducks in a row. Otherwise. Cool. Mm -hmm. 
Well, Ethan, hey, thanks, uh, thanks for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. The people may or may not know who you are. You you stay under the radar intentionally. Um, so, do you even want to give uh, people a place where they can find you? Give your you know, address. You know what I've been. You know what I've been telling people. <laughs> I, I tell them reach reach out to Pat on social media and uh, Pat Davidson. So, um, for those of you um, you know who 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 don't know me, but you know, maybe you heard the name Pat Davidson before. Pat was my uh, professor at Springfield College, uh, now my business partner and uh, and best man actually. Um, so you know he'll 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 do a good job uh, vetting people and sort of. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you just you, you let Pat be your your service? No, no, it's amazing. I want to do that. Essentially, like I don't want to talk to you, but, you know. <laughs> but if you go through the effort to talk to Pat first, I might, but still probably not. So basically, uh, it's Pat is really really good at saying no, and you're <laughs> he's just gonna say no to people. So I think probably what the best thing to do as as a listener, if you really want to get a hold of Ethan, just show up at his place of work, <laughs> hype hype gym in New York City. Um, and he'll talk to you if you pay him $140 an hour. Uh, he'd be happy to talk to you for free if you pay him $140. So is that fair? You're, you got to be more than that per hour. One, 150 <laughs> What if they wear a tank He's top? not even going to tell us because you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, t- I'll, I'll tell you when you show up. Oh. <laughs> uh. I mean, well, hey, I appreciate you, and um, and I and I, I'm assuming that Ryan does too, because he because of this smile, his 15 year old. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I'm doing right now. But just yeah, so we're all clear, it's, it's the, always the, an awesome time, man. The always call me awesome thing time. is for you, Ethan, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, all right, y'all. Um, I hope you have a great Sunday. Right, awesome too, man. Thanks, guys. Peace. Peace. Oh, we got.